Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. You may have seen a recent article in InsideHigherEd.com that began, Wyoming Catholic College has a lot of unusual things about it, each enough to merit a story in itself. Wyoming Catholic is a conservative Catholic college that educates students in the great books and Catholic tradition. It also teaches horsemanship and bans cell phones on campus. I love that. And it turned down federal funding. President Glenn Arbery describes the mission this way. This college is engaged in deep ways with the agony of a culture that has lost its spiritual center. We're adventurous and poetic and deeply Catholic. He likes to cite Dostoevsky in Crime and Punishment. Low ceilings are bad for the soul. The ceilings rise at Wyoming Catholic, which is located in the foothills of the Wind River Mountains. The curriculum centers in the Western tradition. Its Catholic identity builds upon Thomas Aquinas and the magisterium of the Catholic Church and engaging with God in the wilderness. Find out more at wyomingcatholic.edu. We have with us again, uh, as the cliche would have it, a man who needs no introduction, certainly not to First Things readers, uh, George Weigel. He's been with First Things ever since the very beginning. Uh, He is the Distinguished Senior Fellow of Washington, D.C.'s Ethics and Public Policy Center, uh, where he holds a chair in Catholic Studies. Uh, He is the author of too many books for us to mention, but we'll talk about the major biography of Pope St. John Paul, the two volumes, Witness to Hope and The End and the Beginning, as well as The Fragility of Order, another book, and Evangelical Catholicism. We have another book that just came out. It's with Ignatius Press. It's entitled The Next Pope, The Office of Peter and a Church in Mission. Thank you for joining us again, George. Thank you, Mark. Good to be back with you. All right. Well, uh, right off in, in the opening page, you call this book, quote, a payment for a debt. And the debt is something you owe to the many Catholics you've encountered over the years. How does this book repay the debt? I also owe a debt to the three popes I've had the privilege of knowing personally over the past 40 years uh, with men with whom I've been in extensive conversation. Uh, And it occurred to me earlier this year that uh, privilege, uh, as well as the privilege of being in conversation with Catholics all over the world, had, um, had created a debt and that one way to pay that Uh, debt or make a payment on that debt would be to reflect on the church's future through the prism of the recent history of the papacy, these men I have known personally, and try to discern what is it that we've learned about what makes for a vibrant, compelling, evangelically uh, assertive Catholicism, and what makes for uh, a church that's moribund? Uh, and what might a pope do about all of that? The, the office of Peter is a unique uh, office in uh, religious communities. It's really nothing like the papacy and other Christian communities or in other world religions. Um, uh, the papacy has enormous initiating power uh, in the Catholic Church. Uh, And I try to suggest in this book uh, what the next pope might learn from his immediate predecessors about how to initiate uh, and deepen, uh, where it's already underway, uh, authentic Catholic reform uh, and the proclamation of the gospel. You say that it is especially crucial 
uh, at this time because these decades really mark what you call the fifth major transition point in the Catholic Church. Right off the bat, you, you, you mentioned the previous transitions, and we're in one of them now. Now, we've got 2,000 years of history. This, this makes, the, you're, you're claiming a lot for this present moment. What are the characteristics that make this so crucial a transition point? As I've written many times before, and I think we've actually discussed before, Mark, uh, we're in a period of transition that really began in the late 19th century with Pope Leo XIII. The transition from uh, the Catholicism of the late Counter-Reformation, which is very much focused on institutional maintenance, to the Catholicism of the new evangelization, in which those institutions of the church, its parishes, dioceses, schools, healthcare facilities, social service agencies, seminaries, retreat houses, you name it, are being called to become launch pads for mission. The church over the past 125 some years has been rediscovering that its constitution if you will, is the Great Commission of Matthew 28, go and make disciples of all nations. The church is not an institution to be maintained. It's not a club to be maintained. The church is a mission, uh, and the church has to get about the mission of uh, converting the world. Uh, that's, that's, in a sense, a rec reclamation uh, of, of the church's originating impulse, uh, which goes back to the first chapters of the Acts of the Apostles uh, in the New Testament. Uh, but I believe it is the uh, singular marker of living, vibrant Catholicism today. The Catholicism that lives around the world today, whether that's in sub-Saharan Africa or North America, is the Church of the New Evangelization, the Church that has taken missionary discipleship uh, seriously as as the responsibility of everyone in the church and the church that's dying or moribund around the world wherever you look is the church that's either stuck in institutional maintenance mode or has fallen for uh, what I've been calling for two decades now Catholic light uh, and we're beginning I think to understand that to continue the soft drink analogy uh, Catholic light eventually leads to Catholic zero. This is what you see in Germany uh, right now today. It's very sad. Next Pope uh, has to recognize this, uh, has to address it, has to call everyone in the church back into mission. And calling into mission is a cure or an antidote maybe to what you refer to. Your, your, your one word for this institutional orientation is ecclesiocentricity, right? And your term, your opposite term is, is it Christocentricity? Yeah, that's right. And, and obviously, uh, you can't separate Christ and the church, um, uh, certainly not in any Catholic uh, conception of the church or any Catholic conception of, of Christ. Christ and the church go together. Uh, the church is the, the, is the body of Christ in the world. The church continues Christ's mission in the world. But for some centuries, largely under the pressures of, of modernity, uh, the Catholic Church 
thought of itself more and more as an institution to be defended rather than an instrument for uh, the proclamation uh, of the gospel and and uh, as the embodiment of Christ in the world. Now, this begins to change uh, in the immediate post-World War II period. Pope Pius the Twelfth uh, issues an encyclical, actually during the war, uh, called Mystici Corporis Christi, the, the Church as the Mystical Body of Christ. That's a very different image of the Church than the Church as as a perfect society. The Church is a legal or juridical institution. Church has legal and juridical characteristics. Church is an institution, but first and foremost, the Church is the body of Christ uh, in uh, in the world. So uh, we can't be the body of Christ in the world unless we're focused on Christ. And I think it's still a fact today that even a hundred years or so into this uh, fifth great transition in Catholic history, uh, Catholics still speak more easily of the Church than they do about Jesus Christ. And that needs to change, uh, because we can't uh, proclaim Christ, we can't offer friendship with Christ, we can't offer incorporation uh, into his body, the Church, unless we know him. And uh, that is a turn, that knowing comes from a turn towards uh, Christocentricity, uh, towards Christ as the center of the Church's proclamation. We're not proclaiming the Church first and foremost. Come join us. We're another interesting club that you might join. Uh, We're saying, or ought to be saying, Jesus Christ is the answer to the question that is every human life. May we introduce you to him? That's a bit of a different approach, as you can understand. You, you imply that the problem, uh, in part, originates from a different orientation toward revelation. The way you put it is on, on page 30, you say that the, maybe the institutional sense of, of of Catholicism begins with people who, quote, deny that God's revelation judges history and suggest that the flow of history and our present experience judge the truths of revelation. Now, George, I I don't see how one can be a Catholic and historicize revelation in, in this way. How can they do this? Well, it's a real problem. It's been going on, as as you know, Mark, in the liberal Protestant world, really for several hundred years. This is you might call it the Hegelian hangover in 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 liberal Protestantism. And there are uh, people of consequence in the Catholic Church today, largely German in background, who are still suffering from the Hegelian hangover. Uh, and uh, when you're suffering from that malady, uh, you get disoriented. Um, What the Second Vatican Council clearly affirmed is that uh, divine revelation is real. Uh, God has revealed himself uh, and truths about himself through the incarnation of his Son, God has revealed truths about humanity through the incarnation, death, and resurrection of his Son. 
And those truths are good for all time. They're good in all cultures. Uh, They are, if you will, boundary markers uh, to help guide us on uh, our pilgrimage through history. Church doesn't deny the reality of history. It just, the church challenges the notion that we're wandering aimlessly through history without a map. The map has been given to us. The map has been given to us in scripture and in tradition. The map develops over time. This was the one of the great contributions of uh, St. John Henry Newman is to help the church understand how how the road map becomes, if you will, clearer over time, more precise. But a Christianity without boundary markers is is frankly of interest to no one because it's kind of useless. I mean, if you're simply, um, you know, if you're if if the church is like. John Wesley Powell careening down the Colorado River in uh, the 19th century and having no idea where he's going or that the Grand Canyon is coming or anything of this sort. If there are no boundary markers, if there are no maps, if there are no guideposts, then um, uh, the church simply reflects the, the public culture of the time. And that's what's going on in large parts of German Catholicism today. The German church has become an enormous NGO, an enormous non-governmental organization, does some good works in society, but has 2% mass attendance on Sundays. I mean, that's telling you something, you would think. I think you're, you're absolutely right, George, that when you lose the transcendence of revelation, that, that, that a revelation is something that emerges from outside of history. It enters history, but it comes from outside history that you no longer can lead, right? You, you said a moment ago, the church just reflects where the culture is going. You call it, quote, the Catholic Church of Cultural Accommodation. And that leads to, as you say, a church uncertain about the truth of revelation and therefore incapable of proclaiming the gospel fearlessly, and if they can't do that, why go to church? What? Why, why not just? Why not just go? Why not just contribute to to you know the Red Cross or or, or something like that? Well, in the German case, it's it's actually worse because people contribute to the church through the church tax, and then think that that's it. I was uh, just a year ago. Uh, in the summer of uh, 2019, I was giving some lectures in and around Munich. This is Bavaria, the, one of the historic Catholic centers of the German-speaking world. I was staying at a parish in the suburbs of Munich. Um, I asked the pastor over breakfast one morning, um, how many parishioners do you have? And he said, well, here, you know, we mar- we." measure the number of parishioners by the number of people we know pay pay the church tax. Uh, so we have 10,000 people who pay the church tax. And I said, how many people do you have at Mass on Sunday? He said, 200. 2%. And I said, well, have you ever invited, I mean, do you invite people to, you know, who are paying the church tax? come and be part of the Eucharistic community of the church. And he said, I do it all the time. 
And I often get the answer, look, Father, I pay the church tax. What more do you want? Yeah. You know, that that's the NGOification of 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 the church and it's it's the it's kind of the last moment of, of decay of this notion of the church as primarily institution to be maintained. Um and you know, this seems to me so perfectly obvious um that I'm, I'm sometimes embarrassed to keep pointing it out in, in, in articles and books, but it's the fundamental fact about Catholic life in, in the mid-21st century that the next pope, and indeed all of the people of the church, must grasp. Vibrant, living, evangelical, all-in Catholicism uh, is attractive and compelling, and can make a real contribution to society. And Catholic light is moribund, dying, and socially useless. That That's the fundamental fact of, of, of this Catholic moment. Is, is there a growing sense across the world, in the leadership, that those bishops who preside over shrinking congregations should have less influence on church affairs inside the Vatican. That's not easy to measure in that, uh, you know, there are now 5,300 bishops in the Catholic Church. That's a very considerable number of people. At, at, at its height, the Second Vatican Council in its fourth session had some 24 or 2,500 bishops. So the world episcopate has, in fact, in effect, doubled um, since Vatican II, and it's a very complex body of people. I will say that in my recent experience of the synods of 2015, uh, 2018, the Amazonia Synod uh, this past uh, fall, uh, that it was the, vi- the bishops from the growing parts of the world church, particularly although not exclusively, uh, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa, who were the most compelling defenders, to go back to where we were a moment ago, of the truth of Revelation. That was very striking, and I think confirmed uh, this analysis or this hypothesis that, that the Catholicism that has a chance under these very challenging postmodern conditions uh, is is the Catholicism that affirms the truth of of revelation uh, that affirms the truths of the catechism and that believes it it has a responsibility to offer others the gift uh, that it has been uh, given and in those same synods it was these moribund churches from uh, Western Europe, particularly Northwestern Europe, that were pressing to kind of apply this NGO model to the whole world church. And a lot of people were just saying, no, we're, we're not interested. Thank, thank you. But, you know, we're, we're, we're just not interested. So I think uh, over time that that correlation of forces will, will make itself felt in the in the global councils uh, of of the church, um, and it's important to realize that uh, each of the three popes I've known personally 
has emphasized this evangelical dimension of the church. Now, they each understand the new evangelization somewhat distinctively, but they've all said, look, we're in the business of the Great Commission. And uh, they've had different ideas about how you go about that. But the fundamental shift to this uh, Christocentric evangelization from a, an ecclesiocentric maintenance model, uh, I think is pretty widespread right now. I mean, you'd have to, you'd have to be pretty inattentive to the realities of Catholicism around the world not to recognize that. Uh, George, what happened in the first three hours after the election of Pope John Paul? What happened in the first three hours? How, how do you mean? So, so, sorry, you, you have a section in the book on those first hours when John Paul was elected, and it was instantly clear that... Ah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, see what you're, I see what you're saying. Thank you. Um, no, I was really referring to the, the three-hour inaugural mass and, and his great homily on, on that occasion. Um, that was October 22nd, 1978, and uh, I was struck on, on rereading that homily, which I must have read at least half a dozen times before. I, I was struck to be reminded that it begins with Peter's confession of faith. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Those are the first public words uh, at, at that inaugural Mass, uh, homiletic words, that, that John Paul II says. So from the get-go, he puts the proclamation of Christ, the Son of the living God, who reveals both the truth about the merciful Father and the truth about our humanity at the very center of, of his pontificate. Um, and that continued for the next 26 and a half years. Now, that happens to be um, the Christocentricity of the Second Vatican Council. The, the key document of Vatican II, the dogmatic constitution on the Church, begins, Jesus Christ is the light of the nations. That's why the document is known by its Latin title, Lumen Gentium, the light of the nation. So I think we saw in John Paul II, uh, first of all, a bishop who had been at Vatican II and had founded a genuinely Pentecostal experience, uh, a bishop who had taken that experience back to communist Poland and seen how uh, an evangelically oriented church could not simply survive, but could thrive under very, very difficult uh, political circumstances, and who wanted to invite the whole Catholic Church throughout the world into, into that experience. Um, uh, I once asked John Paul II over, over a meal um, why uh, so much of his pontificate had been, in a sense, previewed during his years as the Archbishop of Krakow. And he immediately said, if the Holy Spirit saw fit to call the Archbishop of Krakow to be the, the Bishop of Rome, it must mean that there was something in that experience that was of use for the whole Church. 
And I think it was that Christocentric evangelical uh, idea of the church, which Wojtyla uh, brought back to Krakow from the Second Vatican Council, made the center of his Episcopal ministry there, that he, he wanted the whole church to make the center of, of its life and, and ministry as well. And he really previewed that during those three hours of, of, of that first Mass. And at the end of that period, I, I can't remember whether I use this uh, story in, in the next Pope or not, but uh, um, there's this French reporter, André Frossard, who grew up an atheist, adult convert to Catholicism. And he's watched this Polish Pope. And at the end, he sends a story back to his Paris newspaper and says, this is not a pope from Poland, this is a pope from Galilee. Meaning, this is a pope who's heard the Great Commission. Uh, I think all popes, obviously, are, are summoned to Galilee. The most effective popes are the ones who take us with them back there. Because to go into the future with the Catholic Church does mean going back to the past, means going back to Galilee and hearing, hearing the Great uh, Commission again. Now, George, obviously you think that this is something of a model for the next pope, and you did, in, in fact, include that, quote, uh, that quotation from the French journalist in, in the book. And another way you put it is that uh, going back to the past is a way of insisting that there are no paradigm shifts in in the church. Do you expect that these ingredients will be considered in the election of the next pope? Yeah, I think so because they're the they're the permanent realities of of the church, um, and uh, there are things to be learned from from. The pontiffs of, of the conciliar and, and post-conciliar period. There's there's no pontificate that hasn't given us something uh, to learn from. But um, I think the main the, the main themes that emerge out of my reflection on on you know popes I have known and what we could learn from that uh, is that if if the pope radiates what Pope Francis has called the joy of the gospel. If, if, if his own life and, and simply manner of dealing with people evinces radical conversion to Christ, then in a sense the invitation to friendship with the Lord has already been tacitly offered by, by, that, by that example. Uh, now, I also note in the book, as you will have noted, that in addition to being the church's first witness, uh, the next pope is going to be, have to be the church's very strong-handed housekeeper. There, there's a lot of stuff that needs fixing in the Vatican right now. The abuse crisis remains to be addressed in full. Uh, I think there are some things the American church, by the way, has to offer the world church uh, in, in addressing that. Um, 
But it is entirely possible, Mark, that the Vatican is going to be in a major financial crisis by the end of calendar year 2020. Uh, if that's the case, then that's going to focus a lot of attention uh, at the next conclave uh, on, on the imperative of changing the institutional culture uh, of, of the Vatican in, in respect of money. Um, this is this is not only important in making sure that the Holy See has the resources it needs to make the office of Peter effective uh, in the 21st century world. It's also a question of scandal. It's just scandalous that um, churchmen with no particular financial competence are given uh, positions managing huge sums of money investments they really don't understand or know anything about, uh, and that a, a culture of non-transparency uh, remains uh, in place. This has got to be changed, and I think that is going to be one serious focus of attention uh, going forward. You, you actually say that we need, quote, a thorough house cleaning, and... You also, I should say, go into the book on a lot of specific issues that the next pope should address, including the discipleship of Mary, uh, the sacrament of penance, uh, advancing Christian humanism and distinguishing it very clearly from other forms of humanism, uh, the crisis of the human person, uh, as one chapter heading has it. This is a very tall order for, for, for the next pope. I mean, every pope has a, has a tall order, of course. But maybe as a general uh, overview, you can tell us, you, you have a term here called, quote, papal protagonism. Uh, is, is this the right, so, so, uh, the next pope has to be a papal protagonist in the right way. What would that be? Well, this this notion of papal protagonism is a is one that was suggested to me um, by a friend who's actually had a quite distinguished career in the Vatican diplomatic service. But, but what he means by that is the notion that the Pope is the center of all initiative in the Church, and he thinks that's a bad idea, and so do I. So what I mean by papal protagonism is the uh, Bishop of Rome as the head of, of the College of Bishops systematically and deliberately going about the job of empowering his brother bishops to be genuine vicars of Christ in their own dioceses, uh, to stop punting problems to Rome but to, to face them on, on their own to support as uh, vigorously as he can those bishops who are being uh, genuine uh, evangelists and witnesses to the gospel, to vigorously and publicly support those bishops who are being persecuted uh, for their fidelity to, uh, to Christ, uh, and to empower those bishops to empower their priests and people. This is the kind of papal protagonism we need. It's a protagonism of empowerment, not a protagonism of authoritarianism. There has been a downside to the fact that the papacy has become such a huge part of the Catholic imagination 
and that is that you know everybody seems to want to wait and see what does the Pope think. Well, that's an important thing to know, but uh, if I'm the Bishop of X or the Archbishop of Y, I'm not the branch manager of, of a giant global corporation, you know, waiting for orders from, from the CEO. Uh, I have a uh, legitimate, consecrated, and canonically recognized authority. Uh, I have an obligation to be the chief evangelist and sanctifier as well as governor uh, in this diocese. And the next pope's got to figure out how to choose men who can who can be that. We're doing, you know, we're doing better at that, I think now. Uh but we can do better still. So a papacy of empowering others to be those missionary disciples whether they're lay people, clergy, uh bishops, consecrated religious, that's what we're talking about here. Let me end with a, a quotation from, from the book for everyone to hear from you. The next pope must be, above all, a radically converted disciple, a man formed in the depth of his being by the conviction that Jesus Christ is the incarnate Son of God who reveals to the world the face of God, the merciful Father, and the truth about humanity, its dignity, and its destiny, the intensity of the next pope's relationship with the Lord Jesus and the wisdom of his discernment, of what the Lord Jesus is asking of him at any given moment will determine whether his papacy advances the cause of the gospel or frustrates the church's evangelical mission. The book is The Next Pope, The Office of Peter and a Church in Mission. Thank you, George Weigel. Thank you, Mark. Good to be with you. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.